everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never, ever, you will never need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Well, those are some of the words of the American postmodernist writer David Foster Wallace in his commencement address he gave at Kenyon College a few years before he died. Foster Wallace was no friend of religion, and yet he understood that we all worship. We all worship something. But the question is, what do you worship? What or who you worship makes all the difference for entering God's kingdom? And Jesus would agree with, with that, that everybody worships. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, those who enter God's kingdom are those who worship Jesus alone. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. As we take a look at the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Turn with me to John chapter 4. And as you turn there, I'll give a little bit of context. Well, last week we began our two-week series in the Gospel of John, looking at how and who can enter God's kingdom. And in this series, we're looking at two encounters that Jesus has with one who represents the Jewish religious establishment and the other who represents the Samaritan religion of the day. In Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, we saw that entering God's kingdom isn't a matter of moral reformation, but spiritual transformation. That to enter God's kingdom, one must be born again from above and receive this new birth by looking to Jesus in saving faith. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. If last week we saw how to enter God's kingdom, this morning, we're going to answer who can enter God's kingdom. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are completely different from one another. Yet, they have something in common. They have the same problem, and they have the same need. But now that Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, how will you respond to him? How will you respond to him? To him. Let's read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. You can find it there on the uh, red pewback Bible, uh, there in the uh, seat back there in front of you. 
John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Yes, we're going to read all of it. Because I'm probably not going to be able to look at every single verse as we go along. But I do want to read all of it in one. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, 
I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think the main idea of this passage for us this morning is this. Jesus is the Savior who seeks, satisfies, and sends all who believe in him. Jesus is the Savior who seeks, satisfies, and sends all who believe in him. And those are going to break down into our three points this morning. Number one, Jesus seeks. Number two, Jesus satisfies. And number three, Jesus sends. Number one, Jesus seeks. Number two, Jesus satisfies. And number three, Jesus sends. So point number one, Jesus seeks. Well, in chapter three, Jesus had been in Judea for the Passover festival, and after his encounter with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where his disciples were baptizing his followers. John the Baptist was also baptizing in that area, but Jesus was gaining greater popularity and baptizing more disciples than John. And growing envious of this popularity, John the Baptist's disciples began questioning him about it. And not only did they notice Jesus' popularity, but the Pharisees began to take notice of Jesus' popularity, as you can see there in chapter 4, verse 2. And so Jesus, not seeking to drive a wedge between the two ministries, between him and John, he embarks on a three-day journey north to Galilee. But in order to get to Galilee, it says he had to pass through Samaria, as it says in verse 4. Not only was Samaria the quickest route geographically, but it was also on that day a divinely ordained route. As verse 4 literally means that it was necessary. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Just as as it was necessary for Nicodemus to be born again and for the Son of Man to be lifted up in chapter 3, so it was necessary It was a necessary part of the mission for which Jesus was sent. And so Jesus, showing his full humanity, he gets tired and thirsty, and he comes to the Samaritan of Sychar around noon, and he takes a rest at Jacob's well. 
Now, in the meantime, while his disciples go look for food, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. Now, for an individual woman to be drawing water at the hottest time of day would have been odd for that culture. I mean, women would normally draw water in groups in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler. And yet, this woman comes alone in the heat of the day, indicating that there was something up with her. And we see why in verses 16 through 18. This woman was an adulterer. She was with a man who wasn't her husband. She was immoral. And so in her culture, she was a socially isolated and rejected outcast. And then we have Jesus doing what was culturally and religiously taboo. He's a Jewish male rabbi speaking to an immoral Samaritan woman, which is odd for that culture. Because Jewish men don't just initiate conversations with random women. Yet he defies the gender, ethnic, social, and religious barriers of his day. And the woman is utterly shocked by this. And when he asks her for a drink, she says in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, when it came to the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, you could say that they had a lot of animosity toward one another. Centuries old, in fact. In 722 to 721 BC, the Assyrians captured Samaria, which was the northern kingdom of Israel, and deported most of the well-off Israelites to Assyria. And then the Assyrians settled Samaria with captives from other countries so that they intermarried with the Israelites left in Samaria and began to mix their religion with these foreigners, as you can see in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And so the Jews and the Samaritans absolutely despised one another. Samaritans were seen as ethnic half-breeds with a false religion. They only abided in their version of the first five books of the Old Testament, and they worshipped at a different location, Mount Gerizim, rather than in Jerusalem like the Jews. This is why the woman is thrown off by Jesus' demand for a drink. Out of all those that Jesus could have talked to, she was the most unlikely. She's the last person that we would think Jesus would pursue for God's kingdom. The disciples were even shocked when they returned to find Jesus speaking with her. What do you seek? Why are you talking to her? They're shocked about this. She's not what we would have expected. No, we would expect the Nicodemuses of the world, the religious elite. She was a Samaritan, a woman, an adulteress, a moral outcast who was isolated and rejected, not only among the Jews, but even among her own people, for crying out loud. She's the woman, if you noticed in the text, that shall not be named. Nicodemus gets a name. Not so with Nicodemus. We would have expected Nicodemus to be in the kingdom. Nicodemus was theologically trained, a Jewish man who was a religious insider, respected and influential. Surely, he would be in the kingdom. But Jesus is showing us that both of them have the same problem and they have the same need. They just expressed it differently. She sought satisfaction in worldly things, and Nicodemus sought it in, his, in himself. But friends, I think that this, this story right here serves as a reminder for us 
that we should be just as indiscriminate toward others with the gospel as God is toward us. Don't forget that it's because God so loved the world, everyone, is what world is talking about right there, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. Jesus isn't just focused on the religious insiders who seek truth. Instead, he gives us both ends of the spectrum, the Nicodemuses of the world, the Samaritan women of the world, to show us that he views all people through one lens, our need of him. We all have the same problem and the same need. The middle-class white American has the same need as the immigrant from Syria, as the child among the unreached people group, and as the person who lives right next door to you. We've all got the same problem. We're all natural-born enemies of God, not just the Samaritan woman. We all have the same problem of our sinful nature that separates us from a loving relationship with God. And we, as Jesus says in John 3, 19, loved the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. God doesn't base entrance into his kingdom on barriers that we've erected in our culture, whether that be gender, race, socioeconomic background, or moral status. Entrance into God's kingdom is based on whether or not you've been born again and received the new birth through saving faith in Jesus as we saw last week. But brothers and sisters, have you erected any barriers that would hinder your witness to those that God loves and does not discriminate against? Have you erected any barriers? It could be barriers of different interest, political persuasion of age or of background and personality. Right? We have to watch out for unconsciously living in such a way that affirms these demographic barriers of our society. Just going about our weeks, just constantly associating with all the same people that may look like us or the same as us. We have to watch for that, that subconscious smokescreen that we can tend to put up. Are there any ways that you're allowing comfort or ease or fear to hinder your witness of interacting with those who don't act like you, who don't look like you, or believe like you? It can be so easy for us to just go on living comfortable lives and yet not seek to cross these barriers and connect with those who seem not like us. And yet Jesus has torn down these barriers in his flesh. He has sent us out to pursue both the Nicodemuses and the Samaritan women of the world. And this could be as simple as going out of your way to engage a neighbor who's in a different age and stage of life or who you know would probably disagree with you politically. It could be striking up a conversation with a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant who looks or acts or talks different than you and then continuing to frequent that relationship, that restaurant, in order to deepen that relationship. That's what it can look like. And the reason, the reason that we cross these barriers to pursue others is because one has already pursued you. That's why you do it. That's why you do it. Friends, don't forget that it was necessary that Jesus pursued the Samaritan woman. 
He could have gone another route to Galilee, but he didn't. Instead, he set his face like flint and went straight through into hostile territory for him. Tired and thirsty, he crossed every major cultural barrier of his day and gently confronted her about her sin to show her that her greatest need is him. Brothers and sisters, the glorious reality is that he's actually done this for you as well. It's the purpose for which he was sent, to seek and to save the lost, as Luke says, and as Jesus says in chapter 19, verse 10 of Luke. Jesus, as he's been referred to, is the hound of heaven who is hot on our trail, relentlessly pursuing us. As one theologian put it, he's like a woman who sweeps her house in search of a lost coin, like a shepherd who risks the dangers of the desert in search of only one lost sheep, like a father who misses his wayward son and allows him to taste the bitterness of his folly, but is ready at any moment to run to meet him and welcome him home. We don't find Jesus, rather he finds us. Because we were the ones who were lost, not Jesus. He knew exactly where we were. After all, as Jesus says in verse 23, the Father seeks out those who will worship him in spirit and truth. We only love God because he first loved us. He disrupted our lives to give us what we needed most. And that's him, his own son. So brothers and sisters in Christ, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Ultimately, it's not because of the country that you grew up in or the parents or teachers or preachers and the friends who've influenced you. Though, though each, each of those things are used by God as the means to drawing you to Jesus. But most fundamentally, it's because the hound of heaven has chased after you just like he did Abraham just like he did Moses and David and Paul, to name a few. This ought to humble us because of the extent that God would go to give up his one and only son so that he may claim you as his own and not perish in our sin. This humbles us because God uses us, the unlikelies of the world, to pursue others. Be humbled because God had his heart set on you, not because you were lovely, but because he loved you despite your unloveliness. So friends, Jesus wearied himself and thirst for you and I. Yet, how have you wearied yourself and become uncomfortable so that others may no longer be thirsty? Well, not only does Jesus seek, but he also satisfies, point number two. As we've seen so far, Jesus has approached a Samaritan woman at a well, and he asked her for a drink of water. Absolutely shocked at this, she asked why he, a Jew, is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for water. And Jesus responds to her in verse 10, and he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Wait, what, what is Jesus saying right here? Jesus, you were the one asking for water. You didn't even have a bucket to draw water. 
And now you're saying that she's the one that should have asked you for water. Is Jesus out of his mind? Is he just an awkward conversationalist? I don't think that's the case. Jesus is drawing this woman out to show her her greatest need, and he does so by revealing who he is and the nature of this gift of God with the image of living water. Now, Jesus is using living living water right here metaphorically. For the woman, like Nicodemus, she took him literally. She thought Jesus was speaking about just fresh spring water, which is one way to take it physically. And her concern for water It may not seem like us today, right? We've got water all around us. I can go into my house, get it out of my refrigerator, out of my sink. It even shoots out the side of my house. Water is not scarce, okay? Fresh water is not a scare. It's not scarce. However, water was scarce for those living in a dry and arid climate like the Samaritan woman. And to taste it after dying of thirst would give one great satisfaction. Jesus is saying that it's not fascinating that I asked you for water from the well. What's fascinating is that you haven't asked me for living water. As one commentator put it, Jesus is saying, I've got something for you that is as basic and necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically. Something that won't just satisfy your physical thirst right now, but will satisfy the depth of your soul and give you life for eternity if you will receive it. As he says in verses 13 through 14, everyone who drinks of this water, that is well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, just a couple chapters later, Jesus gives us a greater clarity as to the nature of this living water. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The living water that Jesus gives is the gift of the Holy Spirit who produces this spiritual life within us, as we saw last week with Nicodemus. He is the one, the Spirit is the one who quenches our soul thirst for God and gives us the eternal satisfying life in whom Jesus sends to dwell within us. However, this image of living water was lost on her because as a Samaritan, she had a limited Old Testament that didn't record the prophets who spoke about the promises of this living water. Take, for example, just the prophet Isaiah. I could show you a lot more. We see in Isaiah 12, which Scott Malinsky is going to talk about tonight in the Sunday Night Devo. We see in Isaiah 12, where God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Isaiah 44, where in the day of God's salvation, he will pour out his spirit on his people like water on a thirsty land. In Isaiah 55, where God promises to make an everlasting covenant with all, including the nations, who are thirsty that come to the waters, forsaking their evil ways so that their soul may live. Jesus is showing this woman that he is the fulfillment, he is the Messiah of these Old Testament promises of eternal life in the pouring out of God's Spirit in the day of salvation. He's saying to her, 
The day of salvation is here. It's arrived in me, the Messiah. As it's been put, this eternal life isn't just about life in heaven when we die. It's also about the life of heaven welling up within us while we live. You can taste heaven right now. However, in verse 15, she still doesn't get it. And so in verse 16, Jesus flips the script on her. And he tells her to go and call her husband and come here. She's like, uh, I don't have one. Jesus says, you're right, you've had five. And the one you're with right now is not your husband. Jesus is showing her that she's thirsty. He's wanting to show her that she's thirsty. And that she's trying to quench it with relationships that will never satisfy her. Floored that Jesus knows this about her, she perceives him to be a prophet. And trying to evade the conversation, she steers it toward matters of worship. Us versus them. We Samaritans worship here. Jews worship there. Jesus, you're a prophet. What do you say? And in verses 21 through 24, Jesus explains to her that what matters isn't where you worship, but who and how you worship. And notice how he does this. Notice how he does this. He tells her, that is the one who represents the Samaritans, much like Nicodemus last week who represented the Israelite Jewish elite. He tells her, representing the Samaritans, that she's got faulty worship because she rejects the Old Testament except the first five books. She doesn't worship according to knowledge and truth. Rather, God revealed himself in the Old Testament through the Jews And the Messiah, the Savior of the world, comes through the Jews. That's what it means whenever it says that salvation is from the Jews. So to be a true worshiper is to know the who and how of worship. God is spirit, which means he's divine, invisible. He's not made up of physical matter. He's not a gas, just as he is Light, just as he is love, so he is spirit. He is present everywhere at all times. He's not confined to space. And those who worship him can worship him anywhere. Those who worship in spirit and truth are those whose spirit is born from above or of the spirit in John chapter 3. And the spirit, John says, is the spirit of truth who empowers true worship according to truth found in God's word in the scriptures and according to the word made flesh, who is the truth, who is Jesus. And the woman trying to lay down the trump card on the conversation says that, well, the Messiah will tell us all these things when he comes. And then Jesus takes the mic and he drops it on her. In verse 26... I who speak to you am he. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so what I want to do is I I just want to look at how all this fits together and then look at how it applies to us quickly. Jesus has connected the Samaritan woman's thirst to what she worships. He's connecting these two things. And he tells her that worship isn't about a place but a person. It's fundamentally about him. And how you worship is in spirit and truth. However, only those 
who receive the living water that Jesus offers have eternal life and truly worship in spirit and truth. So I think there are a couple of things that we can learn from this corporately and individually. One of the implications of worshiping in spirit and truth is that when we gather corporately, we don't just come together to do whatever we want as if we've got a blank slate every single week. Well, what do you guys want to do? Right? We can ride motorcycles up here if we want. We don't come to the table that way. We don't come in that way. Rather, when we gather Christ, the truth is the one that we worship. And the scriptures, the truth, give shape and they give instruction to how we worship. They are what tell us what is required in worship. We worship according to how God has set it up for us to worship in his word. And so when we gather, we read the word. We sing the word. We pray the word. We see the practice of the Lord's Supper in baptism according to the word. Everything is intentional within the service. Absolutely every bit of it. Even from John's announcements. And I love how one author put it. Right? We do this with both our heads and our hearts. This is how we worship, with our heads and our hearts. I love how he put it. Worship must be vital and real in the heart. And worship must rest on true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of, or half full, of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in the truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. However, on an individual level, as Christians, we are worshipers who are still sinful, and our worship can often be misplaced. Right? We know that all of life is to be that of worship, but it can often be misplaced. Understand, it's not just that we're, it's not just the promiscuous moral outcasts who do this, who don't worship like they're supposed to. We all run after broken cisterns that leak water, as Dusty read earlier, as Angela read earlier in Jeremiah 2. We all do that. Whether it be a relationship like the Samaritan woman or religiosity like Nicodemus, anything other than Christ will leave us utterly empty. We can be prone to worship and find our satisfaction in other things rather than in Jesus. We can often be like God's people in Jeremiah 2 who run after these cisterns that will hold no water and we will forget that we have the fountain of living water welling up to eternity within us by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like God's people in Jeremiah, we are prone to substitute God's glory for that which does not profit, which is called idolatry. So friends, what are, you, what are your substitute gods? What are you substituting for God? What is it that will absolutely satisfy you in life or make you happy? 
It could be anything that you place your hope, your satisfaction, your security, or significance in, that if it were taken away, you would be utterly crushed right now. Any of that. Whenever you say, I'll finally be satisfied if I get married or make a certain income level so that it frees up our family to do more. If only I had X amount of dollars, then I'll feel secure about my retirement. If only I could get this job, then I'd be able to pursue the career I want. Whether it's relationships, morality, the approval of others, health, job prospects, retirement plans, family, insurance, politics, religion, the holidays, tradition, or even the desire for what is new. It can be anything that is idolatrous. Brothers and sisters, the very reason each of these things always leaves us wanting more is an indicator that they can't satisfy the thirst at the depth of our being. They can't do it. But here's the glorious truth. Jesus can, and he does. Because there was another day at noon when Jesus would ascend a hill and be cut off from the fountain of living water, bearing the full judgment of God's wrath for our sins, and declare... I thirst. It was because he was thirsty and he finished the work that he was sent to accomplish that all those who repent of their sins and trust in him can receive living water welling up to eternal life and never be thirsty again. Our satisfaction is grounded in who Jesus is and in the work that he has done for us through his death and resurrection for his glory. But friend, have you been trying to quench your thirst with the wrong things? This morning you can receive the gift of living water and experience eternal satisfaction. Eternal spiritual satisfaction, not based in something or someone who's going to pass away. But in the indestructible Son of God. That's who our satisfaction is, is in. So turn away from your vain pleasures and trust in him for the water that will quench your thirst for all eternity. Trust in him. Well, not only does Jesus seek and satisfy, but he also sins. And the proper response of one satisfied in Christ is to tell others about him. Jesus seeks, he satisfies, and he sins. Point number three. Well, after Jesus tells the Samaritan woman he's the Messiah, his disciples return in shocked that he's talking with a woman, right? They're shocked that he's talking with a woman. And yet his disciples engage Jesus about why he's talking with her, right? Why are you talking with her, right? And even in the midst of this, as they're kind of, you know, telling her off, so to speak, she's jetted, <laughs> This woman has seen the Messiah and has radically been changed. And the fear, the shame, the rejection, and the isolation that she once felt from seeking satisfaction in the things of the world has been turned to boldness and zeal in proclaiming Jesus. This one has tasted the blessing of the living water and has now become a conduit of that living water to others that they may find lasting satisfaction in Jesus. Notice what she says. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. This isn't the first time that we've seen these words in the book of John. 
It was the message that Jesus proclaimed to two disciples of John the Baptist back in John 1.39. Right after that, Andrew and a couple of disciples went and told Peter that they had found the Messiah. Come and see. And it was the proclamation of Philip that they had found the one who the law and the prophets wrote about in John 1.45 and 46. Come, see. At the same time, As this woman, looking like a disciple though, Jesus' own disciples don't quite get it. They don't quite understand. Jesus, just like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, gives a physical picture of food to speak about the spiritual reality of his mission. For Jesus, his interaction with the Samaritan woman and his mission to the cross according to the Father's will brings greater satisfaction to him than any physical food his disciples could give him. This is exactly the same thing with the woman at the well, with the Samaritan woman. Notice in verse 28, she left her water jar. She doesn't need physical water anymore. Her water is the will of the Lord to go and be a conduit of that living water to others. Yet friends, who do you resonate most with? In this passage, who do you resonate most with right now in your life? The woman who is eager to proclaim Christ to the lost and dying world, or to the disciples who've lost sight of the mission, maybe due to just having grown used to being around Jesus' ministry. They're around a lot of spiritual things all the time. Brothers and sisters, Jesus exhorts us to lift up our eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. And while Jesus is saying this to his disciples, there is a host of Samaritans walking through those very fields, coming to Jesus. Harvest is the time of year that the crop is ripe to gather in. And because the Messiah has arrived sowing the seed and reaping the crop, that's happening at the same time. And Jesus is telling us that some will reap the crop. And some will sow the seed. And at times, you may do one or the other. But the reaper and the sower aren't sitting on the job. They're both to be out in the harvest field, desiring to reap and look to sow. One job isn't better than the other. Both are integral. And without each other, either the seed wouldn't be planted or the crop wouldn't be gathered. The work isn't about you. It's about Christ and seeing others receive this living water that he offers. This isn't a competition between the sower and the reaper. This is a cooperation. And we get to work together. This is the beauty of the local church. We get to work together in our evangelism, whether it's over a meal, inviting other members from the church to help in that, or whether it's an eye friend that you're having over or meeting up with and taking another member of the church in order to expand that network so as to keep those conversations happening, maybe whenever you don't have an opportunity that day or that month to be able to speak to them. There's always multiple people around. You're bringing someone in. People are interacting with them, seeking to want to get to know them, presents them opportunities, more opportunities to share the gospel. It's congregational outreach. And so, friends, in what ways are you living a sent life of Jesus? Could it be that maybe you're You've been complacent without sowing and reaping. But understand what Jesus is saying. The harvest is white 
meaning it's there for the taking. There are lost people everywhere. We're situated to a campus with 30,000 students. There are lost people all over that campus. The lost are your next-door neighbors, their coworkers, their classmates, their family members, their restaurant waiters and waitresses, their teammates, their old friends, their parents of the kids on your son or daughter's sports team. They're everywhere. We just got to lift up our eyes and see them. I think one thing that could help us with this is accountability. We need accountability for building relationships with other people. Are we going out into the harvest? How have your conversations been with non-Christians this week? Hey, have you been able to build a relationship with your neighbor yet? How's that going? Hey, what's your next step in that relationship with them? We can add this in our, in our accountability, in our discipleship. Not only is it local, but it's also overseas. They're everywhere in foreign context. I love how Southern Baptist President... Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer put it, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. Oh, I hope and pray that is not us. I don't think it is. I pray that that wouldn't be us. And yet Jesus has sent out worshipers to bring in more worshipers. There are over 7,000 unreached people groups, which means that that there are less than 2% evangelical. Right, among that people group. Less than 2% of evangelicals among that people group. Over 7,000 unreached people groups. As it's been said, we either go or we send or we're disobedient. We either go, we send, or we're disobedient. I think this can look like just praying. What does this look like for you? Maybe it looks like having a discussion with Ryan Martin about what this could entail for you about possibly being in the global missions training time that he has each week. You can find that online at ubcfayetteville.org if you need to grow in learning more about missions, more about UPGs, and maybe your part that you play in reaching them. You can chat with him. So what fuels our mission? It isn't a new missions program, nor is it the giftedness of one individual. It's the commission of the king that he will be with us to the end of the age and even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And notice the tenor of their hearts. It's the last thing. Notice the tenor of their hearts of the sower and the reaper in verse 36. So that they may rejoice together in this work. The woman, satisfied, filled, brimming, with the living water, is going, satisfied, in Jesus, proclaiming his name. This is the beauty of testimonies. Testimonies aren't fundamentally about us, as we see with the Samaritan woman. Testimonies are fundamentally about what God has done in your life in Jesus. Notice in 39 through 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritan came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They're looking to him. The testimony is about Jesus. And the beautiful reality in all this, the good news, friends, is that now on this side of the cross, 
we get to proclaim a crucified and resurrected Savior who secures eternal life for all those who will trust in him. And this looks forward to a day like Ezekiel 37, when God will unite both Samaritans and Jews under one king in an everlasting covenant, which we find is fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah who pours out his spirit and has opened up blessings to the nations as the fulfillment of the God's promise to Abraham. Well, in the book of Revelation, John records a picture in the future of a day when God's people will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. And the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. A day, as with John, as he records, where the angel shows him the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And yet, in this time that we wait, we say, along with the Spirit and the bride, come. Let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you are not a Christian, Take the water without price today. And friends, if you are, continue to drink from that never-ending well of satisfaction all the days of your life until you reach that final day where you will worship before the Lamb in his presence for all eternity. Those whom Jesus sends are those whom he sought out and satisfied with himself. And those whom he sought out and satisfied with himself are those who are sent. Let's pray together.